tuning in to the Use Guys and That podcast. You can find us across all podcatchers, and our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook is at UseGuysPod. Email us at info at useguyspod.com or useguysandthat at gmail.com. You can find our entire podcast library at useguysandthat.podbean.com. You can also listen to us on youtube.com, search for Use Guys and That podcast, you can also listen to us on bitshoot.com forward slash channel forward slash use guys pod. You can also listen to us on lberry.tv forward slash at use guys pod. And we're also on subscribestar.com forward slash use guys pod. While you're at it, you can also check out our very own website. That's useguyspod.com. On there, you'll find links to all of our shows. We also have a lovely merchandise section, so if you would like to support the show, you can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs for yourself or loved ones. And Jay has also compiled a lovely suggested reading list, which I suggest you check out for educational purposes. You can also support us at our Patreon, and it's patreon.com forward slash useguyspod. We only have one tier available, and you can support us for only $2 a month. On there, we have exclusive B-Sides content that we have. That's never going to get released to the public. That is for our Patreon subscribers only. And we currently have hours and hours of content on there for your listening pleasure. And there is also a chance for a new subscriber to win a t-shirt. So go ahead and if you choose to support us, you get a chance to win that t-shirt. And you can also find our Twitter handles, our personal Twitter handles. Um, Jay is at J-Colo, and That's J-A-Y-C-O-L-E-A-U. Angel is at Angel underscore Soundgirl, and that's A-N-G-E-L underscore S-O-U-N-D-G-I-R-L. You can find myself, uh, Chris G. I am at The Bloodletting, spelled just like it sounds. And you can also find our additional host, Brian. You can find his handle at Brian P789. And just as a reminder, the show handle is at UseGuysPod. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this bonus episode today. Uh, we had a fan write in to the show. Uh, his name is uh, Isidro Rodriguez. Uh, thanks for writing into the show. He asked if we could uh, ask Mr. Preston to come back onto the show, which was uh, really not an arm twist for me, at least. Uh, I, lo- I absolutely love having Keith on the show. Thank you for coming back on with us, Keith. Hi, good to be back. Yes, much appreciated. We had a fan write in again, uh, asking about. We first of all, he was very complimentary about the left anarchism show that we did. Then he wanted to talk specifically. He had three questions. The first question we'll start off with is he wanted to know about the history of right anarchism, specifically the figures and the history behind the movement of right anarchism. Well, that's a somewhat difficult question. Because the first thing you would have to do is come up with a definition of right anarchism. Um, anarchism is a philosophy that is, um, as we know, is somewhat hard to pigeonhole on the left-right spectrum. Even when we uh, recognize that, yes, there is a such thing as left anarchism, that is anarchism that overlaps with the socialist and communist tradition or with the wider uh, enlightenment rationalist tradition. Um, we can identify that as left anarchism, but then there are these other types of anarchism that are at, at different points on the cultural or political spectrum. 
And it's often uh, difficult to determine exactly where they belong in that kind of left-right model, which is obviously an incomplete model. Uh, so when we um, talk about right anarchism, we could approach that from any number of directions. Um, even many of the people that are considered to be godfathers of classical anarchism would arguably be considered right anarchists, certainly by today's standards, but even by the norms of their time. Uh, for example, Pierre Joseph Proudhon, if you look through the sum total of everything that he wrote, he was certainly within the um, within the left anarchist tradition in terms of being a, a critic of capitalism, a critic of the church and all of these things. He was right there within that kind of enlightenment tradition. Uh, but he was also a type of French patriot. He referred to France as the sacred land of Gaul. So he was a type of nationalist, although na left nationalism was much co more common in the 19th century. So we do have to recognize that. Uh, he was also uh, a so certainly a social conservative by today's standards. For example, he believed in the traditional family. His idea was you have the traditional village community based family system as the basis of a, an anarchical social order. Um, that's Pierre Joseph Proudhon. Uh, Bakunin is, a, is another one in the sense that um, he was also a kind of pan-Slavic nationalist. Of course, you know, as I said today, nationalism is considered a far-right idea. Back then, it was a bit more ambiguous. Uh, but Bakunin was a, uh, a pan-Slavic nationalist. He was uh, a harsh critic of Marxism. In fact, he was a very precision critic of Marx. Um, uh, interestingly, some of these fellows uh, strongly criticized Jean-Jacques Rousseau as well. Both Proudhon and Bakunin strongly criticized Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and arguably you wouldn't even have the left in its modern form without the influence of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So that's a, uh, another interesting uh, bit of uh, trivia there. Um, Kropotkin as well. If you look at some of the stuff Kropotkin actually wrote, at times he sounds like a modern Republican when he's talking about get, getting government off our backs and things like that. In fact, it's interesting because uh, this is another bit of historical trivia. Um, it, Kropotkin's daughter, Alexandra, eventually migrated to the United States and became a conservative Republican Barry Goldwater supporter in the 60s. Um, it, there's actually a book by Paul Averick, who was an anarchist historian. Uh, he actually uh, did a lot of research on classical anarchism back in the 60s and 70s when a lot of these people were still alive. And he uh, compiled this oral history of anarchism where he talked to a lot of people who had been involved in the historic anarchist movement, including some uh, uh, well-known people or some people who were the family members of well-known people. For example, he, uh, he got an interview with Benjamin Tucker's daughter, with uh, Kropotkin's daughter, with Johann Most's grandson, I believe it was. Um, and if you if you go back and you look at some of the stuff that some of these early anarchists were saying, they they sound kind of like modern, I guess, modern libertarian leaning conservatives or something like that. So you have that kind of overlap. Um, obviously, uh, Tolstoy. Tolstoy is generally considered to be within the classical anarchist paradigm. The Russian writer. Uh, Leo Tolstoy, Count Leo Tolstoy, uh, but he was actually a Christian. He was, although his theological approach was somewhat heterodox, but he had views that were very similar to some of the kinds of Christian um, communal communal Christians you find in in the Western traditions, like the Anabaptist traditions, like the Mennonites and the Amish and the Hutterites and other groups like that that English speaking people would be familiar with. Uh, so you know, is that is something like that left? It, you know, it's hard to say that that's left. It, it seems like it would be uh, just as right as it is left. Um, William Godwin, who was sort of a prototypical uh, modern anarchist, he didn't call himself that, but he was a um, an Enlightenment philosopher within the classical liberal tradition. He was sort of on the radical wing of the uh, English Enlightenment. He actually was a type of laissez-faire uh, economist. If you look at his views on economics, he wasn't that much different from someone like Murray Rothbard in the sense of advocating just a total free market. But he thought with time and, and social evolution and education and things like that, uh, human, human beings would naturally develop uh, communal uh, living and economic arrangements, uh, which is a very 18th century Enlightenment idea, this idea of human perfectibility.
Um, so that's Godwin. Uh, Max Sterner, uh, he's one that's really difficult to classify because uh, on one hand, he had a kind of individualism that is very similar to someone like Ayn Rand. On the other hand, he was also uh, uh, certainly, a, a, well, he was part of a, an intellectual movement called the Left Hegelians, who were um, followers of the philosopher Hegel, the German or uh, Prussian philosopher Hegel, uh, but they had tended to have more leftward political views. Hegel himself had more rightward views. But uh, Max Stirner had this idea of, uh, you know, basically, you know, egoistic individualism, which led him to reject the state, but also things like private property and all of that. Uh, he, he said that uh, things like private property or the state or uh, or religion, all of these things are spooks, what he calls spooks, meaning they're just ghosts that exist in the head. You know, they're just abstractions that people are uh, give their uh, piety to or their allegiance to, but don't really have any uh, real objective meaning other than what you want them to mean. Uh, Benjamin Tucker, he was uh, the, uh, you know, sort of the leading figure in American individualist anarchism, uh, but he was uh, you know, very similar to modern libertarians as well, in the sense of being sort of a laissez-faire individualist, uh, you know, opposed to communism and, and things like that. He thought of himself as being sort of a radical Jeffersonian. Uh, and these figures that I just named are the big seven. Like these are the the, the the big, probably the seven biggest figures in the in the history of classical anarchism. Now, when it comes to forms of anarchism that are more rightward leaning in a in a more explicit sense, um, if we go back to the period of the French Revolution, uh, there were elements that came out of the French Revolution that were. Uh, I guess we could say radical or revolutionary or something of that nature, but they didn't really have the egalitarian outlook that a lot of the uh, thinkers of the French Revolution, like the more radical philosophes, like uh, a lot. The French Revolution is often considered to be a prototypical communist revolution, and certainly you had an elements of that in it, at least in the latter phases of the revolution. But you also had this kind of uh, uh, individualism that came out of certain sectors of the French Revolution that were that was very similar to what we would now call egoism or or almost like the will to power, almost like a Nietzschean concept. And some of these figures uh, that were associated with this were uh, identified with Luciferianism and, and Satanism and that kind of stuff. Maybe not in a literal sense of actually belonging to a cult that practices that, but more in a more philosophical sense, they thought of themselves as uh, uh, you know, satanic figures, or they, or they admired as a as a rebel against authority, and and you find that in some left anarchist uh, traditions as well. In fact, there was a an American, uh, well, I guess he was an individualist, kind of left leaning, certainly a culturally left leaning individualist anarchist, uh, Moses Harmon in the 19th century. He had a a magazine called Lucifer the Light Bearer. Uh, and then you in uh, Bakunin, Bakunin had this idea as well. He thought of Satan as the first rebel. And of course, uh, not to go too far down this path, but uh, Saul Alinsky, who's often lambasted in the mainstream conservative media, some, as having been some kind of Marxist prophet. Uh, he uh, he actually said that in one of his uh, as an introduction to one of his books, he uh he saluted Lucifer as the first rebel or something like that. Now, he wasn't a, a Luciferian. He was Jewish, actually, and he just had a very milquetoast, you know, what we would call social democratic outlook, uh, political outlook. Um, but the point behind all this is that uh, you, you find this very vast tradition, uh, anarchist tradition that cuts across the entire left right spectrum. I mean, you can find anarchist and quasi anarchist thinking all over the place. Uh, as I said, you had it in the French Revolution, uh, and then you had it within various forms of 19th century radicalism as well. I mean, it's uh, it, there, one thing that I think a lot of the audience probably is not familiar with, because I, I would guess this is mostly an English speaking audience, is that in the um, in the European conservative tradition, you have a tendency that's known as aristocratic radicalism. And it's sometimes called anarchism of the right. Um, 
And what this is, is basically the idea of someone who is not necessary, necessarily an egalitarian. They're not even necessarily a humanitarian. They don't have this kind of left wing ideal of a equal society where everybody loves everybody or this kind of you know, this kind of secularized Christian moralism. They often advocate uh, elitism and believe in this idea of the superior person who rises above the herd, uh, the masses of the herd or whatever, a very Nietzschean concept, kind of like uh, Nietzsche's idea, the Obermenschen or something like that. That's a much wider tradition that you find in uh, the European right. Uh, There were a lot of figures that had these kinds of views. In fact, I I wrote a book once called uh, Thinkers Against Modernity, and that explores about nine or ten different figures that were uh, very influential in the shaping of the European right, uh, including some that kind of overlap with this um, anarchist of the right tradition. In fact, Aleister Crowley, I think, the the well-known occultist, he's often thought of as having been a Satanist, which isn't the case at all, but uh, he he was within this tradition. There are some American-style libertarians who admire a Spanish thinker named Jose Ortega y Gasset. He had a, a well-known book called The Revolt of the Masses. He, he is somewhat within this tradition as well. And these are just a few examples. Um, now, as far as American thinkers, you might find uh, within this kind of anarchism of the right or aristocratic radicalism, someone that comes close is probably Albert J. Nock, who was uh, an individualist thinker from, I guess, the World War One era, maybe. Uh, also, H.L. Mencken. H.L. Mencken is, is very much within this tradition. He probably personifies the American version of this as much as anyone. I want to ask you about this while we're on the topic. Uh, you, you brought up uh, uh, Benjamin Tucker, and um, this is a little bit of a deviation, but it did... <laughs> Did socialism? I was we were having a conversation with somebody else um, about uh, socialism that's not Marxist. Okay, so pre-Marx, pre-Marxist socialism, and how I think it was Lysander Spooner and Benjamin Tucker would have identified themselves as socialists, but our understanding of what that socialism or socialist leaning is is completely different from the modern understanding. Is that accurate, sir? Yes, it is. Oh. The term socialism, I'm not sure how it originated. I I know how the terms anarchism and libertarian originated, but socialism originated roughly the same time. It was in the early 19th century, I guess, that socialism came to be a, a commonly used term. And it was a much broader term than what it later came to be associated with, it was largely just a euphemism for social reform. Like somebody that wanted to reform society was a socialist. And the reason uh, for for it was this was during the early phase of the Industrial Revolution. And um, there was a time when people were concerned about social conditions and things like that. Uh, So you had a lot of people that wanted to uh, reform society in various ways, including changing certain social structures and things like that. And all of that came to be associated with this broad level label of socialists. Uh, And you had all kinds of people who had this kind of label. You had aristocrats and even monarchists who thought of themselves as socialists. Uh, as you had religious people who thought of themselves as socialists. Uh, you also had revolutionary, far left wing people who thought of themselves as socialists and, and you know, conservative socialists and liberal socialists and, and all of that. Uh, so it was a very vast concept at the time. Uh, throughout the 19th century, um, as, as the political left came to be identified with anti-capitalism, Socialism also came to be identified explicitly with anti-capitalism, but anti-capitalism could mean anything. Uh, Someone like Benjamin Tucker, who thought that capitalism in the sense of things like rent and interest and profit couldn't exist on a pure free market, was considered a socialist. And and Spooner had somewhat similar ideas. In fact, there were a lot of uh, American what you would call, I guess, individualist anarchist that had a somewhat similar view. Uh, another one was uh, Green, w- William B. Green, I think was his name. Uh, but Green, Spooner, uh, Tucker, all of these figures uh, had this kind of idea that without uh, without the 
state or with, with a, just a total pure free market, you couldn't really have uh, this kind of uh, profit driven economy based on things like rent and interest and all of that. Uh, that was the, the economic theory they held to. Um, Benjamin Tucker actually translated Marx's works into English. You know, Marx, Marx was German and wrote much of his work in, in the original German. And uh, Benjamin Tucker was actually a translator of Marx, as well as of Bakunin and some of the other Russian anarchists that are more explicitly identified with the socialist tradition. But yeah, someone who was an individualist anarchist in the 19th century would certainly have thought of themselves as being anti-capitalist. Now, you did have people who, who thought of themselves as what we, uh, what it, well, what at the time would have been called a radical liberal or, or, or an extreme liberal, who also had a similar outlook. They had this idea of a, a stateless society with, uh, with a total free market and, and no government of any kind in a way that's very similar to anarcho-capitalism, even if they didn't call it that. But you had uh, Gustav Molinox, who, who was one. Uh, he, he was a Belgian. I think he was Belgian. Maybe he was French. One of the two. Um, and, and he had an outlook like that. Gustav Molinari. Paul Emile Depute, he, he was the one who really first developed the philosophical framework that you today call panarchism. Uh, he also had this kind of pure laissez-faire uh, uh, viewpoint as well. So that point of view was always present. But in, in, and people with that outlook didn't necessarily think of themselves as socialists. They thought of themselves more as liberals. And they were, were very similar to modern anarcho-capitalists, like, say, Murray Rothbard or someone like that. Uh, but you also had individualist anarchists, that is, laissez-faire anarchists, who did specifically identify as socialists. Uh, excellent. Uh, now, would you uh, would you throw Murray Rothbard in there as far as being one of the, uh, I guess, one of the leading figures of right-wing anarchism? Or would you, uh, is he kind of like come to the party a little bit later since we have these uh, almost like founding members or founding anarchists that were part of the original like movement, I guess you could say? Uh well, he was the first person to use the word anarcho-capitalism, but his actual ideas were sort of a hybrid of some earlier philosophies and uh, er earlier theories. What he did was he took four, four basic concepts and fused them together. He took the Lockean natural rights theory that's sort of the foundation of the political theory behind the, Amer the American Revolution, you know, the Jeffersonian idea of everybody has inalienable rights. He took, he took Rothbard took natural rights theory and he took um, individualist anarchism, 19th century individualist anarchism like Tucker, that is a total free market minus the state. Uh, and then he also took the old right tradition that he actually grew up with, which is the pre-World War II right, which also included figures like Albert J. Nock and, and, and H. L. Mencken. Uh, and then he also combined that with Austrian economics, uh, Mises and, and Hayek and Augen von Baerwerk and, and thinkers like that, uh, which most of the, cer certainly the 19th century anarchists who identified with socialism, even the laissez-faire ones, probably would have rejected Austrian economics, although it tended to come a little bit later in time. Uh, as far as someone like, as far as some of these early radical classical liberals like uh, like uh, Molinari, uh, it's a little harder to say, but but Austrian economics is closer to someone like Bastiat, like Frederick Bastiat. Uh, in fact, Frederick Bastiat was a... Uh, a um, yeah, French economist, and he actually held a seat in Parliament at one time, along with Pierre Joseph Proudhon. Both of them are actually members of the French Parliament, and Proudhon at the time uh, was he was the first person to call himself an anarchist, but he also identified as a socialist. Um, and Bastiat, I think, actually sat next to Proudhon in the in the Parliament. But Bastiat rejected socialism, but thought of himself as a liberal, you know, uh, and his if you read his work today, it's very similar to modern libertarianism. Um, so all of these figures overlap with each other. But there's also this wider question of whether the free market anarchist tendency, uh, this kind of radical liberal anarchism, you know, whether it identifies as socialist or not, it's it's. Uh, there's an interesting question of whether that's really the, the true right wing of anarchism. I think a case could be made 
that you have the socialist leftist tradition within modern anarchism, which is Proudhon and, and other thinkers that identify with socialism, Bakunin and all of that. And then you have a more liberal anarchist tradition, which I would be more inclined to put Rothbard in that, along with some of his predecessors like Molinari. Uh, and then uh, I think you could argue that anarchism of the right is, is uh, in the wider sense of this kind of aristocratic radicalism I was talking about, that that's really the true right wing tradition in anarchism, which I think would probably be more closely associated with someone like Nietzsche than with uh, these laissez-faire liberal economists. Uh, I think that I think Nietzsche is probably co closer to uh, catching the spirit of you know, what I think you know, right-wing anarchism in that context is. Now, what about Ernst Jünger? Because the only familiar I'm, I'm only familiar with uh, Ernst Jünger's work because I'm a uh, World War One enthusiast. I'm I, I'm absolutely crazy to read anything about. World War One, and the one uh, book that I read of his was The Storm of Steel, which I recommend to anybody who hasn't read it. Obviously, it's an excellent uh, work if you want to, really want to put yourself in the trenches of the First World War and try to get a, a understanding of what people were facing. I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a, it's a tremendous book. But he gets thrown into the conversation as well. What, where does Ernst Jünger uh, fit into anarchism, if at all? Uh that's a somewhat difficult question as well, um, because Ernst Jünger did not identify as an anarchist per se. Um, it, his background is interesting. As you said, he was a stormtrooper in the uh, Kaiser's Imperial Army in World War One, and he was a frontline combatant. He was wounded something like 17 times. Uh, what is perhaps most fascinating about this guy was he actually enjoyed combat. You know, he had this idea of, you know, you haven't lived until you've looked death in the eye. You know, he was that kind of uh, person. In, in the field of psychology, we, we know what causes that. There are, there are people who have a genetic capacity for fearlessness. They, they just don't experience normal fear. And these are the people who like combat and skydiving, and, you know, race car driving and stuff like that. Or, uh, and if they're more anti-socially inclined, they often become criminals. But uh, the uh, but Younger came from that kind of background. He was a stormtrooper in, in the Imperial Army, and, and then he published his diaries from the, from the front lines during the war, Storm of Steel, which is a very graphic uh, description of what you know frontline combat was like in World War One. Um, in fact, I have a nephew who was 16, and his his goal is to join the military and all that. And I gave him a copy of that book once, and I said, "You may want to think twice about that. This is what war really looks like." <laughs> well done. <laughs> but uh, the uh, the uh, during the period after World War One, what we call the now called the interwar period between the two world wars during the Weimar period in Germany, you know, Germany traditionally had been a monarchy the uh they after the the kaiser abdicated at the end of the war uh a, a republic was declared and you had this uh uh for for the first time germany became a parliamentary democracy uh during the weimar what they call the weimar period um and there was a really interesting intellectual culture that developed in um weimar when I was in graduate school, I had a, a seminar, a special seminar course on uh, on uh, the Weimar intellectual culture, which is really fascinating. So many different things came out of that, uh, left and right. You know, we got the conservative revolution out of that. Uh, we got the Frankfurt School out of that. But uh, Ernst Jünger was peripherally associated with a movement called the conservative revolution, although I think it could be argued he wasn't really a part of that directly in the way that he's often labeled. But you had this wave of thinkers that emerged in Weimar who were definitely right-wing thinkers, who were not conservatives in the traditional sense. To be a conservative in, in Germany in the 20s meant that you wanted to restore the monarchy and the, the, the tradition of Prussian militarism and, and all of that kind of stuff the, in the traditional aristocracy you know, sort of a thrown and altar type of conservatism. These were conservatives, the conservative revolutionaries were conservatives that uh, rejected this kind of thrown and altar conservatism, and they espoused a kind of revolutionary conservatism, sort of a revolutionary right. 
and, and it was right in the sense that it didn't have the kind of universalism that you found on the revolutionary left, you know, like Workers of the World Unite or or the Citizen of the World concept and all of that. It didn't have, so it didn't have that kind of Jacobin or Marxist universalism associated with it. Uh, but it also uh, was anti-establishment, obviously, um, and it was also anti-capitalist. It was very anti-modernist. It was very anti-bourgeois. Um, in fact, I actually have an essay coming out soon on this. Um, it's going to be published in a compilation that Troy Southgate of uh, Black Front Press, which is a, a publishing uh, company that Troy runs, I uh, have an essay coming out. It's called uh, it's called Nietzsche versus Hitler: uh, Anti-Nazism on the on the German Revolutionary Right. So these were, uh, I guess you could say, revolutionary right-wingers in Weimar who were not Nazis or fascists. They weren't that. They didn't buy into the crude anti-Semitism and, and racial determinism and stuff that you found in the Nazi movement. And they're not really fascists either in the, in the sense of emulating Mussolini's movement. But they did have a, a very elitist outlook. They had a nationalist outlook, but they also had a very anti-capitalist, anti-bourgeois outlook. They were pro-military, uh, and they were also influenced by the kind of existential outlook of Nietzsche. These people were typically not Christians or, or anything like that. Uh, and Ernst Jünger was roughly associated with this uh, outlook. And what he envisioned at the time was not anarchism. He envisioned a kind of revolutionary state in Germany that would be a kind of nationalist socialism, but, you know, not national socialism proper like the Nazis, but, you know, uh, but a German national state that had socialist elements, almost like national Bolshevism or something like that. He was associated somewhat with a fellow named Ernst Nakisch, who was a, a German national Bolshevik. Um, but the reason that Sterner, I mean, excuse me, that Jünger is uh, relevant to anarchist thought comes much later, actually. Um, in the 1970s, when he was probably about 70 years old, if not older, he published a novel called Umswell. Um, it's a German term. It's spelled it, uh, E-U-M-E-S-W-I-L, I believe is how it's spelled. But um he actually published this book called uh, Jungswell, and it's a uh, futuristic fictional novel about this guy who lives in this dystopian kind of Orwellian type society. Uh, and he's uh, basically just an average Joe, but he's a bartender for this uh, who works for this tyrannical leader. But this guy isn't involved in any kind. This character isn't involved in any kind of political resistance. Instead, he develops this philosophy that he calls the anarch. He starts to think of himself as an anarch. Like he differentiates the anarch from the anarchist. Like he thinks of the anarchist as somebody who is trying to overthrow an existing social order or resist a particular state. Whereas the anarch is more of an internalized personal philosophy that uh, sort of mentally, psychologically, existentially distances oneself from whatever kind of institutional structures or systems of authority that uh, that exist. It's a kind it's uh, in a way it's very similar to Max Stirner's egoism. In fact, in the in the novel, this main character, the anarch, is uh, watching these uh, video like uh, holograms of all these an older anarchists like Max Stirner and people like that talking about anarchism. Uh, but he's obviously the character's got his own conception of anarchism. He's, a, he's an anarch and he just is thinking of uh, himself and as someone who internally retreats from the, the institutions without actively resisting them. I suppose it's kind of like Buddhism in some ways. The only other, aside from egoism, the only other, philosophical system I know of that is fairly similar to this is probably Buddhism or at least tendencies within Buddhism or perhaps some of the older Greek philosophies like their elements of perhaps Stoicism or something like that it's, it's very or similar as well of course the Stoics are often labeled proto-anarchists as well uh, particularly Zeno's idea of the uh, Republic but uh, that's largely what Ernst Jünger's contribution to anarchist thought was uh, excellent. Uh, excellent. Uh, what about uh, Frederick Nietzsche and uh, what 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 about his ideas and what have they added to anarchism specifically? Uh, 
Nietzsche's thought is so vast and he has influenced so much of modern thinking that it's, it's hard to know where to begin with that. Um, he's often misinterpreted. Uh, many people still, for some reason, think of him as a predecessor to the Nazis, which he clearly wasn't. Uh, his, now, there is a story behind that. He, he had a sister, uh, Elizabeth uh, Forster Nietzsche, uh, who, who was a type of, you know, the stereotype type of what a Nazi is, an anti-Semite and Germanic racialist, nationalist or whatever. And later in life, uh, when Hitler actually came to power, she was a big Hitler supporter. And she tried to appropriate a lot of her brother's work for the Nazi cause. And, and Mija himself was just long deceased by then. Uh, so he wasn't around to uh, refute this, even if he had been in any kind of mental condition to do so. Um, so, but Nietzsche was not a forerunner to the to the Third Reich or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but what Nietzsche did uh, was, I, I think, probably the most important aspect of his thinking is his critique of traditional Western philosophy. If you go all the way back and look at the history of Western philosophy, going all the way back to say the uh, the Greeks, the major uh, Greek traditions like uh, you know Aristotle and Plato and all of that stuff. You have this idea in um, Western philosophy that morality or ethics or virtue has some sort of metaphysical or transcendent property to it. Uh, certainly you find that in Christianity, the idea that there that morals and ethics and things of that nature are objective, that they are independent of someone's opinions or emotions or practical needs and things like that. Uh, and most, uh, certainly the Abrahamic religions and, and certainly many traditional religions, that's the case. And also in some uh, traditional Western philosophy, which is derived from the Greeks. But Nietzsche himself actually identified with the, with the uh, sophist. The sophists were pre-Socratic, that's pre-Socrates uh, tradition within Greek philosophy that basically had, had the idea that might makes right. You know, the idea that, you know, there's only there's no such thing as right and wrong, basically. There's just winners and losers and, you know, good and evil are basically just a function of perception. Like Nietzsche had a famous book that said beyond, it was called Beyond Good and Evil, meaning there's really no such thing as good and evil. What we think of as good and evil is merely what uh, serves our own needs, our own interests, our own desires, and things like that. Uh, but it has no intrinsic meaning apart from that. Um, so that's probably one of the most controversial things about Nietzsche's his idea that he rejected that there's a, the idea that there's a such thing as an objectively quantifiable concept of good and evil. Uh, you know, there's, he, he was a, a radical moral skeptic, I guess you could say, or ethical subjectivist. Uh, and he uh, loudly uh, proselytized for this idea. Um, and Along with that, he was very critical of a lot of the philosophy of his own time. Uh, he's probably um, one of the things that he's most well known for is being a critic of Christianity. And he certainly was a critic of Christianity. But his criticisms of Christianity are widely uh, misinterpreted or misunderstood. He was not uh, a left wing anti cleric anti-clerical type who would say that, well, the problem with Christianity is that religion is a force for oppression and the church and all that are forces for oppression. Now, he wasn't like, say, Bakunin, like if you've ever read Bakunin's book, God and the State, you know, he's railing against the relationship between the church, you know, meaning the Russian Orthodox Church in his time and the state talking about how the, you know, the state is, a, a, I mean, the church is just like the state, it's a force for oppression and all these kinds of things. That's not what, um, Nietzsche was necessarily getting at uh, when he criticized Christianity. Um, in fact, it was more the opposite. He, he had this feeling that Christianity represented a type of decadence because he had a greater admiration for uh, the, the Roman approach to philosophy, the idea that uh, power is good, you know, the idea that uh, and then the will to power is good. And he didn't mean that just in a crude sense of, say, striving to be a dictator or something like that. That's often where the Nazi label gets put, put on Nietzsche. But I think it's more the idea of someone who rises above mediocrity. I think that's basically the, the essence of Nietzsche's critique of traditional morality in the sense that he, he thought that, uh, you know, that 
he, he like in, in his view, Christianity taught what he called slave morality. That is, it taught that people should identify with the downtrodden, the oppressed, you know, the victimized, the put upon, as opposed to the great, you know, the the people who were great achievers, the great great man of history, things like that. He was an admirer of Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great and 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 Napoleon and figures like that. But his contribution to anarchism is interesting because what he did do was create the foundation of postmodernism. Right? Like today, when we hear people talking about postmodernism, um, he much of postmodern thought is really rooted in Nietzsche's critique of quote unquote traditional values. And what he basically said was that traditional values are purely subjective social constructs. That's not really the way he phrased it, but that's what he meant. Uh, so it's just like today when you hear people from the very far neo-Marxist, postmodern, radical feminist, queer theory left, when they're saying, well, sexuality is just a social construct or uh, patriarchy is just a social construct or race is just a social construct. All of that, ironically, is pure Nietzsche, uh, because he was saying that all of these things are just abstractions that human beings create to give meaning to their own lives or their own communities or their own societies, but they don't have any intrinsic meaning. Now, in Nietzsche's time, he was criticizing things like Christianity, like the uh, traditional uh, aristocracy and the monarchy. Uh, he was criticizing uh, the, 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 the rising bourgeois culture of the time because that was what the prevailing value system of the era was. He was saying, look, all of these things are just, you know, um, superstitions that people make up and to venerate in order to give meaning to their own lives or order their own psyche or whatever. But it doesn't really mean anything in any intrinsic sense. Um, and that way of thinking has been built on by subsequent thinkers as well, uh, you know, far beyond what, the way uh, Nietzsche took it. But what was also interesting about Nietzsche was he didn't just cr criticize traditional values. He also criticized the rising alternative value systems of his time period. He lived in the mid to late 19th century. And during that time period, this is exactly when you saw the decline of traditional monarchies, traditional aristocracies, traditional religion, traditional values in this wider sense, and a rising uh, emphasis on liberalization, socialism, equality, democracy. Nationalism was one of these because you know, in traditional European cultures were royal dynasties, and you often had royal dynasties that ruled over multiple nationalities. So you had different uh, nationalities that would want to have their own independent nation and things like that. And that's where classical nationalism comes from. Um, as I said, back in those days, nationalism could be on the left as much as on the right. But uh, you had all of these things emerging in Nietzsche's time, liberalism, socialism, communism, nationalism, uh, utopianism, classical anarchism. Um, he criticized all of that stuff as merely a type of substitute for religion. Like, like he has this, uh, in his book, the, the, uh, the gay science, he has this, which has nothing to do with gay in the modern sense, by the way. Um, but, uh, he has this book called the gay science. And, uh, in that there's this, uh, passage called the parable of the madman. Uh, and in the parable of the madman, uh, he, uh, it's about this madman that stumbles into a village and he's saying, I'm, I'm seeking God. I'm seeking God, you know, in the same way as some kind of, you know, spaced out, you know, uh, religious seeker might, you might, uh, you know, like one of these schizophrenic people you might encounter on the street that you know says they're Jesus Christ or something like that. The, the madman is kind of a character like that. And he's going into a village saying, where's God, where's God. And the villagers are saying, Oh, we all, we killed him, you know? And, uh, and then they talk about how uh, God is dead. And then they they use the they start talking about how we unhinged the earth from the sun and things like that. But Woody, Woody's really he's, he's speaking metaphorically and he's writing in this kind of almost Old Testament like language. But he's using these things as a metaphor for the fact that traditional religion had largely been undermined by modern philosophy and, and, and modern science. So in the 18th and 19th century. You see the rise of the Enlightenment. You see the rise of science, uh, modern science. You see the rationalist cosmology starting to emerge. And that had the effect of undermining the uh, 
influence of, of traditional religion because much of it was viewed as no longer credible, you know, in the sense that, well, okay, we know the world was not created in six days. We know the world is, is very old and was here a long time before humans were on it and things like that. We know that the earth is not the center of the solar system. The sun is and, and all of those kinds of things. Um, so you have the people in the village that are talking about all this in these kind of metaphorical ways, you know, basically saying, well, you know, science and philosophy and modernity, all those things have killed God. You know, it's no, no such thing as God anymore. Uh, and then uh, the madman is in a indirect way. He's ridiculing them for having replaced God with all of these new pieties, what Nietzsche saw as these new pieties. And that's things I mean, he writes all of this, as I said, metaphorically. But he, he means things like all of these new ideals that came out of the Enlightenment or came out of 19th century thinking like liberalism and socialism and, you know, the, the, the you know, cosmopolitanism and the brotherhood of man and human perfectibility and liberty, fraternity and equality. Nietzsche sees all those as new pieties. You know, he, he, in his view, those have no more intrinsic value or meaning in some objective sense than, say, Christianity than say the, the you know the 39 articles of the Anglican Church or something like that but he's lambasting the intellectuals of his time saying well you folks think you've killed God but you're just as religious as these simple peasant religious people that you ridicule you just have a different religion or you just have different gods um, and a lot of anarchists uh, anarchists the tr actual philosophical anarchists people who self-identify as anarchists have always had sort of a mixed relationship with Nietzsche. Um, some anarchists have certainly embraced Nietzsche. Like Emma Goldman, for example, famously embraced Nietzsche. She thought Nietzsche was awesome. You know, she saw him as this prophet of, you know, of, uh, icon, uh, of iconoclasm. You know, he, she thought that he was a guy that was smashing all idols. Um, and I, I used to know this elderly anarchist in New York City back in the 1980s, he was a very old man, he was about 90, and he had been a part of the classical anarchist movement in the early to mid 19th century. And he had actually known Emma Goldman personally, but he actually told me that he didn't like her. And one of the reasons he didn't like her was because th he thought she was too much of a Nietzsche worshiper. You know, he had more the view that Nietzsche was a proto-fascist, you know, with his power worship and idea of ideas on power dynamics and slave morality and stuff like that. So anarchists have always had this kind of ambivalent uh, relationship with Nietzsche. There's some that really embrace Nietzsche, some that don't like Nietzsche. But Nietzsche really was the founder. I, I don't know if he's the founder. He was certainly a, one of the early prototypes for this kind of postmodern framework that ironically influences a lot of this far left uh, intellectual culture we have today. Outstanding. Outstanding. Thank you very much for that. I, I appreciate it. Now, this is the lastly, uh, this one is kind of a complicated question, and uh, I'm going to try to word it as best as I can from our uh, from our listener. He wanted to know what what is the kind of anarchist that you would see uh, that has been influenced by Nietzsche, Stirner, and Junger. Uh, I, I guess that's in the sense of ideologically or philosophically what part of the spectrum we might see um, as far as uh, this person's belief, if you want to tackle that, if you can. Well, I, I, I think you could probably find someone like that anywhere on the spectrum, uh, because these are not really viewpoints that really commit anyone to a particular political outlook. Somebody that embraced Stirner's egoism as a philosophy, I think, could be anywhere on the political spectrum, because all egoism really is, is the idea that people just should pursue their own interests, period, uh, which means that you just do whatever you assess to be in your own interest at the particular time. So if that means joining the military or joining the police or something like that, I suppose you could, that would not be contradictory as far as egoism is concerned. It might not, you know, if you want to extrapolate from egoism, actual political anarchism, it might be contradictory. But I, I think you could probably be anything uh, and be a Sternerite philosophically, uh, so long as you do yourself as just pursuing your own interests. Um, and if you look at Sterner's life, that's exactly what he did. He, one of the things he was most known for was dodging bill collectors. Um, he, he, was, uh, he was the original uh, you know, bad, bad credit, uh, bad risk credit. Um, so I think that's the case with Stirner. Um, 
Jünger and Nietzsche, you know, the same thing there. Nietzsche in particular, there, there are, there are everyone. There are people who admired Nietzsche that range from neo-Nazis to these very far left, postmodern, queer theory, gender theory people. You know, you could you could be uh, Judith Butler and be an admirer of Nietzsche, or you could you know, belong to the American Nazi Party and be an admirer of Nietzsche. I, I don't know that Nietzsche would care for either one of those perspectives if he were here today, but I don't know that Nietzsche's views really commit anyone to a particular political view either. Uh, and which means that, you know, as with Sterner, you could be a left, right or center anarchist. You, know, you could be a kind of aristocratic, radical like H.L. Mencken, an H.L. Mencken type in an American context. Or you could be an anarcho-capitalist, like, say, Murray Rothbard. Or you could be a leftist socialist anarchist, like, say, Emma Goldman and be a nation. Um, and Ernst Younger himself was certainly a man of the right uh, politically, although he tended leftward on certain things, particularly on uh, on, on class issues. Um, the true European far right tends to be anti-bourgeois. They don't really like bourgeois culture. Like in an American context, that sounds contradictory, the idea of an anti-bourgeois right, because American culture is really, you know, America was the original bourgeois nation. I mean, we were the first country to really be founded to be a bourgeois nation. Um, and European conservatives just are disdainful of that. They look at uh, they, the, the problem with bourgeois culture, in their view, is not that it oppresses the working class like the Marxists claim, although some of them may share that critique as well. But they also look at it as degenerative, as decadent, as antithetical to high culture, as uh, as fostering mass society, as lowering the superior individual down to the level of the plebeian, of uh, of, of undermining uh, you know, quality, quality for um, for cheap commercial commodities and things like that. Um, for instance, if you go back and read a lot of the writings from the conservative revolutionaries from the Weimar period, one thing they were very critical of is what they saw as the Americanization of Germany after World War I. Uh, for the first time ever, you started to see American commercial culture really take roots in Germany, and you saw billboards everywhere, and you saw the first department stores, you know, the prototypical Walmarts or whatever. And the conservative were revolutionaries looked at it like this was aesthetically blasphemous. You know, this is uh, this is an eradication of traditional culture and high culture, and it's replacing it with this kind of crass uh, commercial culture. Um, and uh, and Younger identified with that kind of tradition to a large degree, although later in life he kind of you know, moderated some of his views. But uh, so I, I don't I don't know that that really commits anyone to a political uh, outlook either. So I, I guess my answer would be you could be anywhere on the political spectrum and, and you'll know, be appreciative of the ideas of these people. What is your uh, what is your feeling on uh, Mencken as far as like, was he just uh, simply someone who wasn't a big fan of democracy or was he really could he identify himself? Could we identify himself as part of the anarchist movement? Because, I mean, he says some really, I mean, excellent quotes about democracy as far as, you know, art as my perspective and probably from many of a uh, fellow anarchist perspective. Uh, would you would you throw him into the, uh, the the anarchist camp or would you keep him out? Uh, I'm just getting trying to get a feel for what you think. Well, like Nietzsche and and Younger and Sterner, he's somebody that you can certainly appropriate and be a political anarchist, even if he wouldn't have identified as that. I, I don't think he Mencken would have identified as an anarchist and. He lived during the time of the classical anarchists, and I suspect he probably would have viewed the classical anarchists as, a, as these utopian cranks, which, which is kind of how Nietzsche viewed them as well, um, the, the European anarchist of his own time. Um, so I don't think Lincoln would have identified with that movement, although he may have appreciated elements of it, like you know, the anti-authoritarian aspect. But Mencken was very much within this kind of European aristocratic radical tradition, uh, even though he wasn't actually a formal aristocrat. Uh, he was you know, big on the individual who was in, of superior intelligence, who was uh, of superior culture, you know, in the sense of being cultured and appreciative of culture and things like that, uh, and very disdainful of, you know, what might be called uh, the herd creature or the, or the 
product of mass society. Mencken's critique of democracy is the standard uh, European conservative critique of democracy. That's not very original. Um, you know, the, the idea, the European view of democracy is that it basically doesn't elevate the masses to equality, to being equals with the elite. It just simply dumbs down the elite so that they're just like the, the plebeian classes, um, which in their view has the effect of undermining quality altogether and, and excellence and, and, and merit and, and, and high culture and all of that. Um, there's another thinker named Eric von Kunat Ladin. I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but uh, he was an Austrian aristocrat, an actual titled Austrian aristocrat. Uh, he wrote a book back in the 70s called, uh, it's just called Leftism, Leftism. And, as it, and it's very anti-leftist. Uh, he was a traditional Catholic monarchist. And he, but he often said that he was a philosophical anarchist of the right. But he had this very disdainful view of democracy and of mass society generally. Uh, a lot of thinkers within this tradition, they will, they will say that the problem with something like Nazism or communism is that it's too democratic. And what they mean by that is that it's too much oriented towards the masses. You know, like, uh, like someone that within this tradition would look at Hitler's Nuremberg rallies and think, you know, that's just like, uh, you know, they, they would think that's just, that's just like a pro wrestling exhibition or something. You know, they would just see that as a circus or in theater. They, they, they wouldn't see that as anything admirable or substantive, you know, even though they don't, care for democracy per se. They, they believe more in an aristocracy and this kind of traditional ordered system and kind of meritocracy uh, of that type, I guess, you know, kind of like thank Eric von Kuhn was a big admirer of the Chinese civil service examination system. You know, this idea of only the superior should be allowed to make decisions that really govern society and things like that. Um, Mencken, I think, seemed to implicitly identify with those kinds of things. Um, he, uh, you know, he he was he was Mencken really didn't fit well with bourgeois culture, and he certainly didn't uh, fit well with the kind of lowbrow tradition that you see in American culture, like uh, uh, what we might call the know nothing tradition. That is, you've got this tendency within American culture that tends to be very parochial or provincial or kind of super patriotic or hyper religious. For example, these people that you'll see. You know, they'll, they'll carry an American flag and say, USA, we're number one, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Mencken would have viewed that as the ultimate in, in human degeneracy. Um, he, he despised stuff like that. In fact, uh, he, he, during the uh, uh, 1920s, when he was doing a lot of writing, there was a, a, a large-scale resurgence of Christian fundamentalism in the United States, particularly in the South. Uh, and he used to refer to them as the, the Baptist and Methodist barbarians of Dixie or something like that. You know, it's, uh, for that reason, he's often thought of as having been a leftist, because if you look at a lot of his writings on, on religion, he sounds like Richard Dawkins or, or you know, Bertrand Russell or somebody like that. But that's not really the case. He was actually within this kind of European ra uh, radical right tradition. Outstanding. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to throw it out to the floor. If anybody else has uh, something they'd like to ask Mr. Preston, uh, go right ahead, Christopher. Uh, I don't know. It might seem like a bit like a pedantic question, but does is it kind of hard to peg down like what right anarchism is just like according to say like how we define the term in the modern era just because how the terminology has changed or the meanings behind it from say like the classical era of anarchism compared to nowadays. Oh yeah. I think it's very hard to, to really act, really define right anarchism in some objective sense. In fact, I'd say it's hard to define left anarchism in some objective sense. If you look at the umbrella of left anarchism, what does that include? It includes syndicalism. It includes anarcho-communism. It includes queer anarchism. It includes primitivism. Uh, you know, uh, how, how are syndicalists who want to have this, uh, in, you know, technological industrial society run by workers' councils, how do they have anything in common with primitivists who want to abolish modern industry altogether? And yet they're both considered part of left anarchism. Uh, and it's kind of like that with right anarchism as well. Um, I actually have a, a, a talk that I gave a few years ago to the H.L. Mencken Club. Uh, which is an organization, obviously, named for Mencken. Um, 
And uh, it, the, the title of the talk is Anarcho-Fascism, and an overview of right-wing anarchist thought. Uh, the title wasn't given to this talk by me. This is just a topic I was assigned by the organization. So the, the term anarcho-fascism is in scare quotes. It's kind of, um, <laughs> it's kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but it, but it does. What the talk is about is the anarchism of the right tradition, and I'm not focusing so much on market anarchism like Murray Rothbard or or uh, libertarianism. You know, I'm not focusing on that so much as I am focusing on this kind of aristocratic European right wing anarchism uh, and and Nietzsche, the Nietzschean tradition, and all of that kind of stuff. That that the transcript of that talk is actually available online. Uh, it's available on the HL Making Club's website, and it's also in, available on my website, which is attackthesystem.com. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Miss Angel, do you have anything you would like to ask Mr. Preston? I do not, know. I just would like to thank you again for coming on. It's always a pleasure to have you, and you're so informative on all of these topics, and we really appreciate you taking the time to come and speak with us. Yeah, no problem. I enjoy being on this program. You, you actually asked me about topics I want to talk about, which often that's not the case when I'm on interview. <laughs> well, we try to we, we could be of service. Yes, absolutely. And you know something before before we let you go, uh, you brought up syndicalism, and I last time we talked, obviously it was uh, about left anarchism. Can you you alluded a little bit the last time that there was a right wing form of syndicalism called national syndicalism? Is there any? Can you elaborate a little bit on that before we go? Yeah, well, syndicalism is a broad concept that refers to two basic ideas. One is that you have syndicalism as a revolutionary strategy, and that's just the idea of you have a workers' insurrection where workers essentially seize control of government. Or of the or of industry rather through a type of mass strike or workers insurrection, so that's syndicalism as a strategic concept. And then uh, there's also syndicalism in the sense of you have labor uh, or you have industries that are run by labor organizations like unions. Now you have anarcho syndicalism, which is the idea that you just have no state, but you have industries that are run by labor organizations uh, minus the state. That, that's where the anarcho part comes from. But you have national syndicalism, which is the idea that you don't necessarily abolish the state, but you do have this kind of syndicalist model of industrial organization uh, where you have these uh, industrial guilds that are perhaps connected to the state as branches of the state or operate uh, as partners with the state. Uh, and you, that was an idea that was associated with the far right back in the early to mid 20th century. Um, the national syndicalists and anarcho-syndicalists tended to be enemies. You know, one is on the left, one is on the right, but also the, the, the role of the state is, is much different. And then the aims of syndicalism are much different as well. Excellent. Uh, I don't have anything else. If anybody else, speak now. Forever hold your peace. Angel, you're obviously okay. Christopher, anything else? No, I'm good. Uh, excellent. Is there any are any plugs that you would like to uh, to give out real quick? I know you already talked about Attack the System. Is there anything else that you would like to direct our listeners to check out, sir? Uh, well, if you're interested in the topics we've been talking about, if you read my book, Attack the System, it's just called Attack the System, there are some extended essays in there where I explore the ideas of Nietzsche and Ernst Jünger and Max Stirner. And also, I have a book called Thinkers Against Modernity that's a review of the ideas of some of these thinkers as well. Uh, it's not Thinkers Against Modernity is not about anarchism per se. It's more about just anti-modernist thinkers in a general sense. But I do have a chapter on Nietzsche in there, and I have some other thinkers that had uh, related views, uh, Julius Evola, Crowley, um, let's see, I can't remember who's in there. It's been a number of years. Uh, Carl Schmidt. Uh, I think there's a section on him. Uh, so you may want to check that out as well. Excellent. Uh, we will uh, put that in the show notes to make sure that uh, if our listeners uh, want to check it out, that they can get to it. Um, in closing, I'd like to uh, say hi to our international listeners from France, Australia, Spain, United Kingdom, Romania, Italy, Belgium, Brazil, Greece, Holland, Sweden, Finland, Canada, Poland, Germany, India, Russia, Portugal, Bulgaria, Croatia, Puerto Rico, and Argentina. 
And, of course, a special shout-out to our friend Paul B. from B-Town, who waves the black flag from B-Town, sends me uh, uh, book-length text messages. We appreciate you, Paul. You keep the the fire burning out there, pal. Uh, If you want to get at us or info at useguyspod.com. And uh, use guys in that at gmail.com. I'd like to once again thank you, Mr. Preston, for joining us. It's always an excellent time uh, learning from you and speaking with you. And I hope our, enjoy, uh, our audience will enjoy it. Thank you once again, sir. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Peace. Me!